Hi everybody and welcome back to the Dark History Podcast. Hope everybody's well. Thank you again for the massive support shown on the previous episodes and the season so far. We recently hit 2,500 plays and 250 downloads. All the support given is appreciated greatly. This episode as the last starts off with an apology for my timing, or more so lack of it. Life is hectic at the minute with work and family life so if you could please bear with me for the time being i will get back on track so episode 9 takes us back to london finally and part 2 of our dark history of london series i will be talking in this episode about the great fire of london and we'll be talking about the tyburn gallows a place where thousands of people met their maker I know there is a few events to do with London, such as the Black Death and Jack the Ripper, that would, or should, fall into this bracket, but I feel that they warrant their own standalone episode, so I won't be talking about them. So without further ado, please sit back, relax, for more Dark History. We will begin our tale in the Middlesex Manor of Tyburn, Tyburn, meaning place of elm, was a village close to the current location of the Marble Arch and so called for its position adjacent to the Tyburn Brook, a tributary of the Lost Westbourne River. Although executions took place elsewhere, most notably on Tower Hill, which were generally related to treason by gentlemen, the Roman Road Junction at Tyburn became associated with the place of criminals execution after most were moved from Smithfields in the 1400s. Prisoners were taken in a public procession from Newgate Prison in the city via St Giles in the Fields on Oxford Street, which at the time was known as Tyburn Road. The first recorded execution took place at the site next to the stream in 1196. William Fitzosper, popularist leader, who played a major role in an 1196 popular uprising in London, was cornered in the church of St Mary Le Beau. He was dragged naked behind the horse to Tyburn, where he was hanged. In 1537, Henry VIII used Tyburn to execute the ringleader of the Pilgrimage of Grace, including Sir Nicholas Tempest, one of the northern leaders of the pilgrimage, and the king's own bow-bearer for the Forest of Boland. In 1571, the Tyburn Tree was erected near the junction of today's Edgeward Road, Bywater Road and Oxford Street, 200 metres or 660 feet west of Marble Arch. The tree, or the triple tree, was a form of gallows consisting of a horizontal wooden triangle supported by three legs, an arrangement known as a three-legged myrrh or a three-legged stool. Several criminals could be hanged at once, so the gallows were used as a mass execution site, such as on the 23rd of June 1649, when 24 prisoners, 23 men and one woman, were hanged simultaneously, having been conveyed there in eight carts. The site was operational for over 650 years, becoming renowned as the principal location for public executions in London. The last days of the condemned were marked by religious events. On the Sunday before every execution, a sermon was preached in Newgate's chapel, which those unaffiliated with the execution could pay to attend. Furthermore, the night before the execution, around midnight, the sexton 
the St. Sepulchre's Church, adjacent to Newgate, recited verses outside the walls of the condemned. The following morning, the convicts heard prayers, and those who wished to do so received the sacrament. On the day of the execution, the condemned were transported to Tyburn Gallows from Newgate on a horse-drawn open car. The distance between Newgate and Tyburn was approximately 3 miles, or 4.8 kilometres, through St Giles in the Field, down Oxford Street, before arriving at the Tyburn Tree, which would have been located between the modern-day affluent area of Mayfair and Paddington. This would be their final destination. The condemned were expected to put on a good show, wearing their finest clothes and going to their deaths with indifference. The crowd would cheer a good dying, but would jeer any display of weakness on the part of the condemned. A journey that would now take 20 minutes on the number 23 bus could take up to 3 hours due to the number of people crowding the route, many wanting to get a last look at the condemned. This was certainly a public show. A usual stop for the car was the Bowl Inn in St Giles, where the condemned were allowed to drink strong liquor or wine. This is where the saying, one for the road comes from. Executions were thought to be a deterrent to crime, so spectators were heartily welcomed in the thousands, but ironically, pickpockets at these events were rife due to the huge crowds. The placement of the gallows was in the centre of a busy roadway, looking over Hyde Park, which made it hard to miss. Those at the more fortuitous end of the social ladder could even pay to ascend a viewing platform was constructed especially for the occasion. But on one occasion, the stand collapsed, reportedly killing and injuring hundreds of people. This did not prove a deterrent, however, and the executions continued to be treated as a public holiday, with London apprentices being given the day off for them. Having arrived at Tyburn, the condemned found themselves in front of the crowd in a noisy square. Before the execution, the condemned were allowed to say a few words. The authorities expected that most of the condemned, before their death, would be commending their own soul to God, or would admit their guilt. It's reported that majority of the condemned did so. A noose would then be placed around their neck, and a cart pulled away, leaving them hanging. Death was not immediate. The fight against strangulation could last for three quarters of an hour. It's believed that people were occasionally hired to hang on the victim's legs to give them a quicker death. Suspension hanging typically results in a more slower death than long drop hanging and the extra weight on the victim's legs could potentially make the rope mercifully work faster. As I mentioned previously, the first person to be hanged at Tyburn was William Fritz Osbert for his role in the popular uprising. But Osbert wasn't the only notable figure hanged there for their role in rebellions. Michael and Goff and Thomas Flammock were executed on the 27th of June. 1497 for the leadership of the first Cornish Rebellion of 1497, or Henry Oxberg, who was one of the leaders of the Jacobites when they rebelled in 1715. Oxberg was hung, drawn and quartered in 1716. Also, there was Thomas Fitzgerald, the 10th Earl of Kildare, a rebel who renounced his allegiance with Henry VIII. On the 3rd of February 1537, the Earl after being in prison for 16 months, along with his five uncles, were all executed as traitors at Tiber by being hanged, drawn and quartered. The Irish government, not satisfied with the arrest of the Earl, had written to Cromwell, and it was determined that the five uncles 
James, Oliver, Richard, John and Walter should be arrested and killed also. Speaking of Cromwell, Tyburn is where everyone's favourite parliamentarian was hanged after he was already dead. Yes, you heard that correctly. Oliver Cromwell died in 1658 and his decaying corpse was unceremoniously disentombed from his final resting place in Westminster Abbey in 1661, put on trial for the murder of King Charles I and then hung at Tyburn. Robert Hubert was hanged at Tyburn in 1666 also. Hubert falsely confessed to starting the Great Fire of London. We will hear a little bit more about Robert Hubert later. A few notable highwaymen were executed, like Claude Duval in 1670, the gentleman highwayman James McLean in 1750, and John Ram or Sixteen String Jack. What a random nickname. In 1774, there were nuns, priests and saints executed alongside murderous thieves and gang leaders. The last person to be hung from the neck until dead for murder was Reverend James Hackman. He murdered Martha Ray, who was the mistress of John Montague, the 4th Earl of Sandwich, in 1779. The very last soul to be claimed by the Tyburn Tree was John Austin, who was a highwayman, and he was executed on the 3rd of November, 1783. Records show that between 1571 and 1783, around 1,100 men and almost 100 women were hanged. Londoners were also executed at Smithfield, and Tower Hill. After 1783, because the government's fear of public disorder and riots was so great, executions took place at Newgate Prison, where security was easier to manage. Even then, they remained a spectacle, available to Londoners, with some paying up to £10 for a seat at one of the windows overlooking the gallows. The last public execution in London were in 1868. So if you're ever over on Oxford Street, where it meets Edgeworth Road and Bayswater Road in London, have a look for a small circular plaque in the pavement, and here is where so many lost their lives. At this point in our tale, we'll move on to the next section, which is the Great Fire of London. The silence of the midnight air on Pudding Lane was disturbed by the cries of fire, fire, fire. It was Sunday the 2nd of September 1666 and a fire had broken out at Thomas Farriner's bakery a little after midnight. The family were trapped upstairs but managed to climb from the upstairs window to the next door house, except for the maidservant who was too frightened to try and became the first victim of the night. The neighbours tried to help douse the fire and after an hour, the parish constable arrived and judged the adjoining houses had better be demolished to prevent further spread. The household protested and the law mayor, Sir Thomas Bloodworth, was summoned to give his permission. When Bloodworth arrived, the flames were consuming the adjoining houses and creeping towards the warehouse and flammable stores on the riverfront. The more experienced firemen were clamouring for demolition but Bloodworth refused on the grounds that most premises were rented and the owners could not be found. Bloodworth was generally thought to have been appointed to the office of Lord Mayor as a yes-man, rather than possessing the requisite capabilities for the job. He had panicked when faced with sudden emergency, and when pressed, made the oft-quoted remark of a woman could piss it out, and left. Samuel Pepys ascended the Tower of London on Sunday morning to view the fire, 
from the battlements. He recorded in his diary that an eastern gale had turned it into a conflagration and had burned down an estimated 300 houses and it had reached the riverfront and was burning houses on London Bridge. He took the boat to inspect the destruction around Pudding Lane and at close range and described the fire was lamentable. Everybody endeavouring to remove their goods and flinging them into the river or bringing them into lighters that lay off. Poor people staying in their houses as long as till the very fire touched them and they were running into boats or clambering from one pair of stairs by the waterside to another is something he wrote in his diary. The fire spread quickly in the high winds and by mid-morning on Sunday people abandoned attempts at extinguishing it and fled. The moving human mass and their bundles and carts made the lanes impossible for firemen and carriages. Pepys took a coach back into the city from Whitehall but reached only St Paul's Cathedral before he had to get out and walk. Pedestrians with handcarts and goods were still on the move, away from the fire, heavily weighed down. They deposited the valuables in the parish church away from direct threat of fire. By Sunday afternoon, the fire had become a raging firestorm that had created its own weather. Tremendous uprush of hot air above the flames was driven by a chimney effect. Wherever contradictions narrowed the air current, such as the constricted space between jetted buildings, and this left a vacuum at ground level. The results: a strong inward wind fueled by the flames, and the fire pushed towards the city centre. By Sunday evening, it had travelled 500 metres west along the river. Throughout Monday, the fire spread to the west and the north. The spread to the south was mostly halted by the river, but it had torched the houses on London Bridge and was threatening to cross the bridge and endanger the borough of Southwark on the south bank of the river. London Bridge is the only physical connection between the city and the south side of the River Thames and had been noted as a death trap in the fire of 1633. However, Southwark was preserved by an open space between buildings on the bridge which acted as a firebreak. The fire spread to the north reached the financial heart of the city. The houses of the bankers in Lombard Street began to burn on Monday afternoon, prompting a rush to rescue the stacks of gold coins before they melted. Several observers emphasised the despair and helplessness which seemed to seize London on the second day, and the lack of effort to save the wealthy, fashionable districts which were now menaced by the flames such as, as the Royal Exchange, combined bars and shopping centres, and the opulent customer goods shops in Cheapside. The Royal Exchange caught fire in the late afternoon, and was a smoking shell within a few hours. Suspicion soon arose in the threatened city that the fire was no accident. The swirling winds carried sparks and burnt flakes long distances to lodge on thatched roofs and wooden gutters, causing seemingly unrelented house fires to break out far from their source and give rise to rumours that fresh fires were being set on purpose. Foreigners were immediately suspected because of the ongoing Second Anglo-Dutch War. Fears and suspicions hardened into certainties on the Monday, as reports circulated of an imminent invasion of foreign undercover agents seen casting fireballs into houses, or caught with hand grenades or matches, there was a wave of street violence. 
Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. The inhabitants, especially in the upper classes, were growing desperate to remove their belongings from the city. This provided a source of income for able-bodied poor who were hired as porters, and it was especially profitable for those who owned carts and boats. Hiring carts had cost a couple of shillings for the week before the fire. On that Monday, it was rose to as much as £40, a fortune equivalent to roughly 133000 in 2022. Seemingly, every cart and boat owner in the area of London came to share in these opportunities, and the carts jostled at the narrow gates as panicked inhabitants tried to get out. The chaos at the gates was such that the magistrates briefly ordered the gates shut in hopes of turning the inhabitants' attention from safeguarding their own possessions to fighting the fire. Monday marked the beginning of organised action, even as order broke down in the streets, especially at the gates, and the fire raged unchecked. Bloodworth was responsible as Lord Mayor for coordinating the firefighting, but he had apparently left the city. His name is not mentioned in any contemporary accounts of the Monday events. In this state of emergency, the King put his brother, James, Duke of York, in charge of the operations. James set up command posts on the perimeter of the fire. Three courtiers were put in charge of each post, with authorities from Charles himself to order demolitions. James and his guards rode up and down the streets all Monday, rescuing foreigners from mobs and attempting to keep the order. On Monday evening, hopes were dashed that the massive stone walls of Bayard Castle, Blackfriars, would stay the course of the flames, the western counterpart of the Tower of London. This historic palace was completely consumed, burning all night. Tuesday the 4th of September was the day of the greatest destruction. The Duke of York's command post at Temple Bar, where Strand meets Fleet Street, was supposed to stop the fire westwards advancing towards the palace of Whitehall. He hoped that the River Fleet would form a natural fire break, making a stand with his firemen from Fleet Bridge and down to the Thames. However, early on Tuesday morning, the flames jumped over the fleet and outflanked them driven by an unabating easterly gale, forcing them to run for it. By mid-morning, the fire had breached the wide, affluent luxury shopping street of Cheapside. James's firefighters created a large firebreak to the north of the conflagration, although it was breached at multiple points. Through the day, the flames began to move eastwards from the neighbourhood of Pudding Lane straight against the prevailing east wind and towards the Tower of London, with its gunpowder stars. The garrison at the tower took matters into their own hands. After waiting all day for requests for help from James's official firemen, who were busy in the west, they created a firebreak by blowing up houses on a large scale in the vicinity, halting the advancing fire. Everybody had thought St Paul's Cathedral, a safe refuge with the thick stone walls and natural firebreak in the form of a wide empty surrounding plaza. 
It had been crammed full of rescued goods, and its crypts filled with tightly packed stocks of, of printers and booksellers in the adjoining Patasnasta Row. However, the building was covered in wooden scaffolding and was undergoing piecemeal restorations by Christopher Wren. The scaffolding caught fire on Tuesday night. Within half an hour, the red roof was melting and the books and the papers in the crypts were burning. The cathedral was quickly a ruin. The winds dropped on the Tuesday evening and the firebreaks created by the garrison finally began to take effect. Peeps climbed the steeple at Barking Church, from which he viewed the destroyed city. He wrote in his diary, The saddest sight of desolation that I've ever saw. There were many separate fires all still burning, but the great fire was over. It took some time until last traces were put out. Coals were still burning in the cellars two months later. Fears of foreign terrorists and of French and Dutch invasions were high, as even among the traumatised fire victims, there was a panic on the Wednesday night in the encampments of Parliament Hill, Moorfield and Islington. A light in the sky over Fleet Street started a story that 500,000 French and Dutch immigrants had risen and were marching towards Moorfield to murder and pillage. Surging into the streets, the frightened mob fell on any foreigner whom they happened to encounter and were pushed back into the fields by the trained bands, troops of lifeguards and members of the corps. Only a few deaths from the fire are officially recorded, and deaths are traditionally believed to have been few. The material destruction had been computed at 13,200 to 13,500 houses, 86 or 87 parish churches, 44 company halls, the Royal Exchange, the Customer House, St Paul's Cathedral, the Bridgewell Palace, and other city prisons, the general letter office, and the three western city gates, Ludgate, Newgate, and Aldergate. The monetary value of the loss was estimated at around nine to 10 million pounds, equivalent to 1.72 billion in 2022. Robert Hubert, remember him, watchmaker from Rouen, France. He confessed that he started the fire in Westminster However, this story proved unsatisfactory and his confession changed upon learning that the fire never reached Westminster. Having learned that the fire started in Pudding Lane in the house of the baker, Thomas Ferriner, he then changed to have thrown a crude fire grenade through the open window of the Ferriner's bakery. He claimed to have acted with accomplices who stopped the watercocks to sabotage the efforts to put out the fire. Hubert's confessed motive was apparently that he was a French spy and an agent of the Pope. Hubert's confession never seemed convincing. His retroactive change of story to fit the facts, though, was not the only reason. Hubert had not even been in London at the time that the fire broke out. He had not even arrived in England until two days after the fire had started. Having never seen the Farriner's Bakery, Hubert also did not know that there was no windows. What is more, he was judged so severely crippled that it would have been impossible for him to throw the claimed grenade. 
Hubert's confession is often attributed to mental simplicity and an inability to understand what he was doing despite many obvious flaws and impossibilities in Hubert's confession, but a scapegoat was needed. Hubert was hanged at Tyburn Gallows, London, on the 27th of October 1666. As his body was being handed to the company of barber surgeons for dissection, it was torn apart by crowds of Londoners. Ironically, more people died building the Great Fire of London's monument than died in the fire itself. So yeah, that was the Dark History of London Part 2. I hope everybody enjoyed it, and it was worth the wait. London is an amazing place, I have to admit, especially if, like me, you're a history buff. I mean, there's been a settlement there for well over a thousand years, and it's amazing just to walk the streets that Dickens, Marks, or if you go on the guided tours, Jack the Ripper, which I highly recommend. I would love to know how many people have been and what you thought of the place. Anyway, every week I forget to mention about the Dark History email. I always link it but never talk about it. This is for you guys to reach out to me with any topics you would like me to cover in any episode. Because in essence, this podcast is nothing without you, the listeners. So, that's where you can send them and I will try my utmost to reply to everybody. As always, links to my YouTube and TikTok will be in the descriptions below, along with the Dark History email address, obviously. Thank you so much for listening to the episode and your continued support on the channel, and I hope to see you back next time for episode 10 and more Dark History.